I think the work should stand on its own as a physical object. And I want people to be inquisitive about the object. Data Stories is brought to you by Click. Are you missing out on meaningful relationships hidden in your data? Unlock the old story with ClickSense through personalized visualizations and dynamic dashboards, which you can download for free at click.de slash data stories. Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of Data Stories. My name is Enrico Bertini. I am a professor at NYU in New York, and I do research in data visualization. And I'm Moritz Stefano. I'm an independent designer of data visualizations. So I'm more on the practical side of things. And together we talk about data visualization analysis and generally the role that data plays in our lives. And uh, usually we also do that with uh, guests we invite on the show. And uh, today we have a special guest again, Adrian Siegel. Hi, Adrian. Good to have you on. Hi, Adrian. Hi. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. So, Adrian, can you tell us a bit uh, about what you do and uh, what your background is, what you're currently working on? Yes, um, I am a sculptor. I make physical representations of data. Uh, my background is in furniture design, mm -hmm. which is what my degree is in and um, spent about 10 years doing woodworking, functional fabrication and non-functional and really building up a base work of skills to uh, make physical things that I want to make. And throughout that process, I've incorporated data quite a bit into my work um, to drive a conceptual inquiry. Mm -hmm. And uh Did you first like really produce like practical furniture or did you dive into like data sculpture straight away? How did, how did you get started? That's a good question. I, I, I started in furniture design because I didn't want to do a fine art um, specific major and I didn't mm -hmm. want to do a design specific major. And furniture, particularly in the program I was at at California College of the Arts, fit right in between both of those. Mm -hmm. So there was no requirement that you had to make functional things. And there was also no requirement that they were made out of particular materials. Um, so you could focus mostly on design and try and work for a firm um, when you were done with school, or you could just go crazy and make weird stuff, mm -hmm. which is more or less what I did. So I started out just learning how to build things, how to work on machines in a full wood shop, welding, metalworking, kind of a range of um, fabrication techniques. And um, during school, the very last year, I got to do um, a project in my thesis work that was fully self-directed. And that's really where I came to data design. And it wasn't a direct uh, line of thought. It started with um, visual illusion and perception and how we read um, visual forms and symbols and how we interpret them. And that really led me to Edward Tufte's work, mm -hmm. which uh, changed, changed and really like changed my process and really made me go straight into data visualization. Mm -hmm. um, 
Th- that is funny because now he does sculptures too, right? So maybe he was inspired <laughs> as well. <laughs> he does. Yeah, so. I'm not a huge fan of his sculptures. Yeah, I think his information is also his better too. Yeah, but, but it's a funny yeah. parallel actually. Yeah, and he's actually quite controversial. His ideas are, are you know, mm-hmm. pe- so people love him, and he's the guru of like the foundation of data, data viz. Sure, but uh, he's also very. Some of his, I don't know if you've read any of his books recently, but he's very pointed and very opinionated, yeah. and um, it's of an era. It's dated a bit now, but. Um, really, really had a big influence on what I wanted to do. I think what I was trying to figure out is I loved building things um, and I wasn't motivated enough by making functional furniture, mm-hmm. like making someone a desk that had a special drawer in the right place, which just wasn't <laughs> enough yeah. of intellectual uh, investigation for me and trying to to do something with bigger ideas outside of myself. Mm-hmm. Um was was really what drove me to do more conceptual work through physical materials. Yeah. And so your degree project, it was called Tidal Datum, right? Mm-hmm. And this was basically the first data sculpture furniture project you, you did, right? Yeah, that was the first one. Yeah. Can, can you tell us a bit about it? But like, what does it depict? How does it look? It's a bit hard. Always on the podcast, we will, of course, link photos. and <laughs> But still, maybe you, you can describe a bit uh, the impression you get from the piece. Yeah, yeah. So it is um, a full cycle of tide charts from the um, a location in San Francisco Bay, um, which I sourced the data from the NOAA's online historic tide historic tide database, and you can actually search back for tide data from when that station was first set up, I think in like the 1850s. It's one of the longest continually operating tide stations in the, at least in the U.S., I'm not sure in the world. But um, the tide graphs, I collected 29 of them because that's a full cycle of how long it takes the moon Mm -hmm. to go around the sun. And there's two highs and two low tides per day at this location. Um, And obviously throughout that cycle, there's more extreme tides and less extreme tides. And so I turned all of those into flat bar steel by printing them out at full scale and then bending them physically by hand with a bending jig. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Into each individual day of tides and then built a framework that holds them up relative to sea level so that um, you get a three-dimensional physical representation of that full cycle of tide patterns as they ebb and flood over the month. Mm-hmm. And they look like waves again. So this is this nice, so it comes full circle basically because it looks like a, a wave progression. Yeah, yeah. And that piece really started because all my work really starts with a personal experience. There's a beautiful site not too far from the Golden Gate Bridge called the Sutro Bathhouses. And it's these ruins that are left over. In the 1850s, there was a huge bathhouse built there um, that was super popular and then kind of got unpopular and then mysteriously burned down through an arson fire. And Mm -hmm. uh, now it's these ruins with these like leftover pools like where people used to swim and when the pools were active they were all circulated the water was circulated fully by the tides so it was this super interesting site where they were harnessing the power of the tides for like human entertainment but also now if you visit the site it's really the tides just taking back these ruins as they're going back into the ocean um 
And that experience of visiting that site had a really profound impact on me and was really the inspiration for looking at tide patterns because I wanted to understand how we use science to analyze the natural world and what those things look like through that lens. Yeah, if, if anyone is is listening to this and wondering how this looks like, hey, if you can just stop for a moment and go to Adrian's website, every every single project is very well documented and there are lots of lots of images. I I I love that. Even though I have to say I would love to see it <laughs> in person. <laughs> but even just looking at the pictures is is so beautiful. And I and I love the fact that you are showing the intermediary stages and how, how you actually design the idea, the sketches, and uh, also the scientific graphs. Yeah, like you get scientific graphs, the original yeah. scientific data. It's very nice. Yeah, great. Yeah, it's very research heavy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I love the fact that you are exposing the process. That's that's awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I um, I think the work should stand on its own as a physical object or uh, as most of us will experience those things through a photo. <laughs> um, and and I want people to be inquisitive about the object because I think there's an intuitive sense that there's something going on that the object is telling you something more than just meets the eye. And that's why I think it's really important to have that information along with the whole project so that those people who recognize that can go in and dig in and really discover all of the background um, of how that piece, what's it, what's it telling them, what's incorporated and embedded into it. Yeah. Shall we talk about a few more projects? So just so people get a sense of what types of things you have also done in the meantime. So this, this one is more than 10 years ago already. You've done a lot of like projects along the lines of data sculptures often with um let's say ecological data and uh th there were a few that also go beyond just uh, let's say um um physical incorporation so I, or you explored a lot of different directions there so one i found really interesting is the growing glacier project uh you had on the site where you Uh, or maybe you tell a bit about it. Uh, I, I found that very interesting. <laughs> yeah, um, the ice sculpture. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> someone once asked me, wait, it's ice. Is that art? How can you sell it? <laughs> <laughs> That's a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I appreciated that question. Um, yes, I. so I did a residency at um, this wonderful art gallery in um, Homer, Alaska, which is a really remote, tiny town that only has about 5,000 people that live there. But it's beautiful. It's right on Kachemak Bay. It's across um, the bay from this really big ice field that has a ton of glaciers. And I was there for a month kind of researching and working with the community. And I met with a whole bunch of scientists there. And um, one of them was studying glaciers and glacial retreat. So through that research, I ended up learning that there's not actually very much data available about how much mass is lost in glaciers. Only more recently have they started doing LIDAR scans um, where they can see a bit deeper um, and understand more about uh, the thickness that's lost. So the only... Um, kind of longer term data sets they have on glacial retreat are 
mapping the perimeter as it's receding. And Mm -hmm. so the earliest versions of that from the 1800s are from observation from people exploring those areas. And then more recently from aerial photos. And obviously now that satellites have been up um, for about 30 years, the last, you know, most recent data is from that. And obviously that process has of of melting has increased since then. So so I met with a scientist who provided provided me with a bunch of different maps of glaciers um, right outside Homer. And one of them you can visit. It's super cool. You take Mm -hmm. a water taxi across this bay. Mm -hmm. Um, They drop you off. You hike in maybe six miles and you're at the base of the glacier. You can, um, which is actually a lake now. So it used to be the actual glacier and now it's uh, a big glacial lake and then the glacier is kind of in the distance. And I went to this site and um, decided to do a piece about that particular glacier And so I took the perimeter maps and um, was able to create a three-dimensional form that um, one axis, the vertical axis, is time. So showing how that glacier's changed shape from, you know, the 1800s when the first maps were taken to current day. I think Mm -hmm. the data ended in about 2012. And I used uh, a computer program called Rhino for Mm -hmm. 3D modeling those pieces by essentially lofting the perimeters um, into each other to create a more fluid form and then slicing it up and making it out of a physical material and back into analog with plywood and then carving that into a a really smooth kind of curvaceous form. And then um, because this piece was about this ephemeral idea of glaciers and ice and how they're melting and disappearing, I went through and did a few more steps to create a two-part mold of that positive plywood sculpture (laughs) with a uh, silicone right. over it, which is a nice bright pink color if you look on the photos online, mm-hmm. um, which captures the texture real and like the detail in the positive form, and then is very loose and um, rubbery and and uh, needs structure. So then you create a two part mother mold to give that um, rubber structure, and then you take out the plywood and you can fill it with different materials to make castings. Mm-hmm. So I ended up casting it in. Uh, water and then filming the piece melting sort of as the main form of documentation of that piece. Yeah, so that's that's quite elaborate. Basically, first the plywood, <laughs> then the silicone, and then the the ice, and then melt it again. So kind of a crazy, crazy process. Yeah. yeah. But the plywood itself, it looks much more like a canyon. So I can see how it wouldn't capture the, yeah, the the ice aspect as well. So. And the ice looks so nice. It's it's v- very clearly frozen. How, how did you manage to get it to freeze so nicely? Did you have any special tricks there? Oh, it's like crystal uh, clear. It's like really, it looks very pure. Yes, there is much you can learn about material properties <laughs> in trying to make ice castings. Um, so it depends on the source of your water. And mm-hmm. if you boil the water first. Uh, oh, really? It comes out crystal clear. I actually did a few different castings. Um, This happened over a longer time. You know, it's never linear. So I did the initial design while I was in Alaska, but I didn't have access to facilities to fabricate anything. So Mm -hmm. about a year later, (laughs) I did um, a different residency in Colorado where I had a wood shop available with a CNC router. So the plywood form 
was initially cut parts on a CNC router that I then hand shaped once they were assembled into a solid block. Mm-hmm. Um, at that facility is where I was able to do the ice castings and the filming. And it took several tests to figure out um, what kind of water to use first, also um, how long to put it in the freezer so that I could take it out at six in the morning, set it up with the GoPro, and then have it melt uh, all in one day. Have it melt. Oh, oh man. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 So, and one day it started snowing, so I had to take the of GoPro course. back yeah. inside. Um, <laughs> and the, the video that ended up working the best um, actually was was pretty cool because in the background of the video, there's these kind of smokestack forms. Um, Mm -hmm. This, this, um, it was at Anderson Ranch Arts Center, which also has a big kiln yard, and they were doing a wood firing that particular day. So there's these smokestacks, (laughs) like, releasing smoke in the background of this, like, ephemeral Uh ice sculpture based on a glacier that's just melting before your eyes. Um, So it's about an eight-hour filming that's condensed into, I think, 45 seconds, maybe a minute. Um, And in the beginning, it's really slow. Like, you don't really notice anything happening, and then suddenly it's really quick, right? It's like collapses. Yeah, the moment where it collapses, I've definitely, when I've shown this to groups of people, there's sort of like a, oh, Oh, (laughs) (laughs) like there's that moment. Like I love, I love feeling that that hit in a way um, Mm -hmm. because that's when I know that it it works the way that I thought it might. Because you never, you know, when you start a project, you never know if it's really going to work. But yeah, there's yeah, there's a moment where it just falls over and then you you get to nothing at the end. It's really sad, actually. (laughs) It's true. And you can't sell it. So <laughs> <laughs> I did actually show that piece recently in a gallery, which was kind of difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, we It was kind of crazy. It didn't work super great because it's just a lot of work to keep casting new ones. And the mold is not like an industrial mold, so it's not really made to be cast mm-hmm. a whole bunch. Okay. But I ended up making a plinth that the sculpture could sit on that had sort of a very discreet drain in the bottom so that the water (laughs) wouldn't just drip all over the gallery or the pedestal. And (laughs) it was just whenever people came in, it was shown at different states of being melted. So the actual ice sculpture was shown and it was cool because of the opening people out of context, people don't quite, they can't put together in their heads why there would be ice in a gallery. Um, (laughs) Which is quite beautiful. So many people, it, I mean, if it was actually like a, a piece of artwork, you're never supposed to touch artwork in a gallery. But I think because it was ice and people wanted to know if it was real and have that tactile, visceral uh-huh. feeling of touching it, a whole lot of people were touching it at the opening. Oh, that's um, beautiful. <laughs> someone may have licked it. I'm not sure. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, yeah, it's just I like those. Inviting. Yeah, I like those moments cool. when people are just so enticed by the like form or the material, and I think the material really should speak to the initial idea, which is why ice was really important for this piece. Even though, no, it's not really like sellable. Although there yeah. have been other ice artworks that are sellable. Okay, along with the freezer, then mm-hmm. <laughs> freezer comes for free. <laughs> yeah, <very good. laughs> yeah. yeah. I forget the artist, but there is a man who made these frozen, okay, it's his own head, like his own bust (laughs) 
with his uh-huh. own blood frozen <laughs> in uh, the shape of his head. Wow. And then it comes with a whole refrigerated unit. This is a very famous artist. I can't remember his name. And there was a story that one of them was sold to a collector. And I somewhat once it's sold, it's the collector's responsibility to sure. make sure it stays yeah, yeah. frozen. And mm-hmm. someone accidentally unplugged this. <laughs> <laughs> so you got blood everywhere? <laughs> yep. Gone forever. Yeah. So I'm not the first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. But I, I love that, yeah, to work with these types of materials. And it's, yeah, it raises totally new questions, right? About like, yeah, what you what you do and what it stands for. And so, yeah, it's, it's very nice. You have lots of other projects on the website. There's a recent project with like ball chains uh, about a river, California water rights. Mm-hmm. Um Lots of wood projects. So you um, uh, do a lot with plywood, right? It's like different layers and then um, um, bring them back into shapes. Um, There's a beautiful snow water equivalent cabinet uh, showing the, uh, what is it, the the ice um, or snowpack heights on a pass in uh, Sierra Nevada. Uh, really beautiful projects and many of them are sort of they have something to do with like wind or water or ice or like all these rough basic elements right is is that a fair characterization <laughs> yeah i think yeah. that's fair i don't yeah. i don't really know i'm i kind of know why like uh i i think i started with tides and then i just i have so much um I get so much inspiration from being in nature. I grew up in Colorado. I've spent a lot of time in the mountains. And uh, I I think that it's one of those things that many people just find peaceful, kind of um, reflective time when they're mm-hmm. in a natural environment. And I definitely feel that. And I think that um, noticing changes in the landscape often is tied back to things like water. Um, I have a piece on fire, so related Mm -hmm. to the lack of water. Um, And it's definitely uh, a recurring theme in my work, but is not, I'm not limiting myself to that specific theme for choosing what data I work with. I really wait until I find the idea or the data set that will reveal something really interesting and let that drive the project. So water is definitely a recurring theme, but mm-hmm. not limited to that. Yeah. Yeah, but it's such an interesting combination because you have these fundamental, like elemental forces, basically. And then you have these huge, often really big, massive, but also very elegant objects you craft from them. And what drives them, basically, the shape is the data, which is so abstract and non-tangible. And I, I think somehow it, it comes together really beautifully. And um there's a again you have to go to the side but there's a very distinct style you have and a very distinct approach and i think it's, the pieces are just uh super fascinating um what, what i was wondering about is like how, how does this actually work like these are so big pieces sometimes and so much like so much physical work going into them like how how do you produce these types of things um can you tell us a bit about like how the the practical side of these of the production but also of the design and the prototyping and i don't know the shipping or the storing i mean <laughs> I, I can imagine there's so much stuff you have to take care of with these massive huge pieces like 
the larger wood pieces must be heavy too, right? Like, how do you handle all this? Can you tell us a bit about the, the everyday aspect of being a, a, a sculptural data artist? Yeah, yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, I uh, I work primarily out of a shared wood shop and mm -hmm. um, full access all machinery. They're really nice because they let me... Um, carve a lot of plywood which is not fun to be around when that's <laughs> okay. happening is it dusty uh, or is it loud or what's the it's problem? really dusty dusty um uh. Yeah. The shop we share is really loud anyways, but there's a particular <laughs> tool I use, a die grinder, um, uh -huh. that makes a sound not unlike a dentist drill. <laughs> 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 and it's a variable speed, so the harder you squeeze the trigger, the faster it goes, which is great for carving because mm -hmm. you have so much control. And it's also really powerful. I think it's like 40,000 RPMs. Um, wow. Wow. So it's like a Dremel, but but way more powerful. And, and it's a dressing, you hold it in your hand and you move it across the surface and by modulating the pressure, you can modulate how strong it uh, carves, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I, I mean, carving is honestly, like, there's a lot of plywood carved pieces on my website. And yep. the, the reason for that is that it's so easy to index layers of things mm -hmm. in a material that is flat comes easily in a four by eight sheet and can be cut into very sh crazy shapes. When you start using solid wood for things, there's um, uh, a lot of wood moves is essentially the basic rule. So wood is a natural material that expands and contracts and it gets more complicated to be able to cut specific shapes out of it and stack them um, right. in a way that the grain will work and it won't crack or bow mm -hmm. or break mm -hmm. later on. So plywood primarily has been the material I've used because it's so easy to index and cut shapes out of and assemble yeah. into a bigger form. Um, the basic approach is you, you slice it into little, let's say, terraces of the files form you want to have, right? So at first mm -hmm. it, it looks like different, like, yeah, you see the slices and then you will take away all the, the sharp edges and it becomes a smooth form, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'll have it all like, you know, I design at my house, I finalize the design, I get all the parts that I need to have cut. Sometimes I have them cut by a CNC friend, or um, sometimes I cut them myself, depending on what I'm doing. I'll bring mm -hmm. them back to my shop, glue them up into a big, solid form. So it's a big mess. There's like, layers <laughs> that are all uneven edges, there's glue squeezing yeah. out everywhere. And then you have to label everything too, right? Otherwise, you lose track of what's what's where. Yeah, right? I mean, oh, it's a puzzle. Be, yeah, exactly. It's be super <laughs> yeah. organized. Yeah. It's wow. a big puzzle. Yeah. And I mean, oftentimes I'll have to give my CNC guy a map of each part and have it <laughs> right. labeled. Sometimes it's by the date. You know, it'll be like, this one's 1998. And yeah. I get them all back and I have to assemble them. And then once they're all assembled, I carve them all. And that's really, right. it's such a fun It's such a fun experience. The carving part is beautiful because I don't have to problem solve or think about it anymore. I get to tap mm -hmm. into like an intuitive action in my body. It's a direct, um, a direct expression of how I'm holding a tool, how I'm using the tool, like my muscle memory, mm -hmm. and then abrading and shaping that form. And 
Plywood's also really nice for shaping forms because as you carve through it, the lines, the contours of the lines come out and you Mm -hmm. have this beautiful reference point to control how those shapes reveal themselves. And some of the sculptures I've made, actually, I've changed the angle that the plywood is cut at so that I can accentuate those curves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they look again a bit like the ISO lines you would get on maps, right? So that's another like nice data visualization back reference in a way visually yeah um, that the plywood makes these concentric lines around the mountains and so on yeah yeah yeah, yeah, cool. yeah yeah and it i mean it takes a long time to to go from design to fabrication to like finished yeah. and like how many pieces do you mess up at some point <laughs> like <laughs> is it like pretty much that you nail it every time or is it like every second piece you somewhere in the middle you you screw it all up and you have to restart like uh, mm. what's <laughs> I don't I don't make as much mistakes in terms of like like where I've where I've made something that I just can't use. I right. think it's more like, you know, artists have a really good understanding of this. Mm. Not every single piece you make is going to be like awesome. Sure, and I've sure. definitely tried things that are not in my portfolio online, you know, like mm-hmm. I don't show them publicly because I just don't feel like they captured the idea or the movement right. or the. But it wasn't like a practical problem that you like made a mistake in, in the processing the material, but it's more like artistically, you, you don't say it's it's quite there. Yeah, I, I mean, I have made mistakes in like, you know, I, I cut a bunch of plywood pieces out of an extra sheet that were the wrong thickness. And when you're stacking things, Ah, they all need to be the same thickness. So then Mm -hmm. I had to get that sheet recut, you know, those kind of mistakes, which happen. Any fabricator knows that happens all the time. (laughs) Um, But never where I've like gotten halfway through a piece and been like, this is not working. I'm just going to throw it away. It takes me so long to get an idea developed enough to dive in, to make it, you know, like there's lots of ideas I've gotten through, a design to a design, but can't resolve something about how to make it. Oftentimes, because I don't start with what I want the finished piece to be, I don't, um, I don't know how to make it <laughs> until I get to the point of fabricating. And sometimes I get stuck where I don't know how to fabricate something, or there's some geometry in the form that is really complicated and not very easy to fabricate, or I need to learn a new material to be able to realize it the way that mm-hmm. I think it should be done. Mm-hmm. So there's so many steps and checks and balances to get to the point of fabrication that once I start fabricating, I pretty much know exactly what I need to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Also, I mean, just financially, probably it's a huge like cost you would take just to try something out in huge, <laughs> right? So uh, there's lots of work and a lot of material involved as well. Right? Yeah, it's easy to spend a thousand dollars on plywood, you know. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> But I guess you get some discount by now. Yeah, do you have like a shop where, they, <laughs> where yeah. they are very happy when you show up again? It's like, oh, it's plywood time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in the grand scheme of things, people like, I mean, my shop is mainly shared with with fab- fabricators doing like kitchen cabinets and large scale furniture. So they buy actually a lot more material than I do, okay. but okay. financially, <laughs> yeah, I, if I'm going to make a piece that doesn't have a client that I'm putting all that money in myself, um, which is fine. I don't, I want, I want to make things I care about. And if I have to fund that myself, I'm fine with that. 
Yeah, as as I'm looking through the images of of your of your works, and, and listening to you talking about how you do it, it makes me want to do something similar. I'm I never do that. I, I live in a digital world. It's it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I'm, I spend most of my time in front of my computer when I want to create something, right? So for mm. for me, creation is mostly creating something digital, and fortunately, it's visible most of the time. But <laughs> there are people out there who create. <laughs> things that are not even visible. <laughs> so uh, one thing I wanted to ask you is, um, so one aspect that I really like related to that is that you are kind of like bringing back uh, like tangible information from from digital information, right? So you're going the opposite way rather than going. So normally data is normally the kind of like recording something, uh, aspects or information of some real phenomena that that happen out there, right? And you go the other way, you start from digital and you put it back into the physical world. That's something that I, that I really love of your work. So w- what do you think are, say, the, the advantages or disadvantages of working in a, in a digital versus physical world? What, what is possible to do with, with data sculptures that is hard to recreate or, or communicate with in, in the digital world? Mm. That's a good question. I, um, I've been doing a lot of research into, um, the relationship between data information, knowledge, and wisdom. Have you guys mm. seen the pyramid? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I'm really interested in the knowledge side of that because I feel like there's so much information out there and it's not necessarily coming through. Um, and, and being applied to a knowledge or a knowing or a synthesized learning that people can actually utilize in their lives. Um, and I'm speaking very generally here, but that's, that's something I've been looking at. And in terms of science, in terms of like removing the human element or the, the subjectivity, uh, from how we look at the natural world, I'm most interested in applying the information that science is collecting and aggregating and turning that into knowledge by having an observer and by creating a physical experience that that observer can then intuit the information that's available. Um, And that's really why I feel like physical sculptures are the way that I've realized my work. I don't know if artwork is the most generally accessible um, format for that, but I think that the physical experience, um, the storytelling, the connection between humans that can happen through an experience is one of the key elements to push the scientific information and the data like overload that we have towards something that can be applied to knowledge. And that's why I've really been digging deeper into um, the physical realm of representing data. Yeah. And I have to say that, I mean, right now, like the totality of information that we acquire from digital devices is mostly exclusively visual, right? But mm-hmm. I, I think there is a lot of evidence out there that we acquire information from our environment in many different ways, right? Mm-hmm. So I guess mm-hmm. having, even in surprising ways, and um, 
Yeah, I think that's fascinating. There, there's, I mean, right now, there's simply no way to have a similar experience to the one that you have when you see a, an actual physical object, right? I mean, despite the recent advances in virtual reality, it's just completely different, right? <laughs> it's, it's so much richer. And uh, yeah, I don't think we are at a stage where we, we can even simulate um, at all the, the this kind of experience. Yeah, well, and I'm I we have to remember that the original instruments for data collection are our senses. Like, and I feel that I feel personally a lot of um, push and pull with the digital world because it's trying to mediate and take away my my being able to rely on my own senses, um, mm. and that. That includes sounds and smells and sight, you know, and touch. And there is a lot of VR more recently that's trying to incorporate a broad spectrum of of sensual activation in their experiences. But it's true, like it's never going to come close to the feeling you get being outside in a forest, like hearing hearing like wind through the trees and feeling that wind on your face. And like, those are the moments that I'm after. And that's, you know, what really inspires the work that I make. And I, I want, I want to show people that they can rely on their senses and be more in touch and in, intuitive with them. Mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah. Well, one thing I also find striking is when you sort of you create these massive objects out of data, you, you give also the data a lot of, really actual weight like because you you say this data set is so important <laughs> you know i, I want to really have like a, an object representing it it's not something you would swap out easily or go to the next page or you know or delete or change the formula it's yeah it forces by, you to engage giving it the physical yeah. form yeah <laughs> and it's like you give it an actual weight and an actual importance and i think that's Yeah, if everything like can be changed anytime, like like in the digital world, nothing's really final or actually important. You know, anything could be different anytime, and and these wood objects they stay the way they are, right? It's, yeah, there's no undo button when you're carving exactly, wood. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but that also gives then the underlying data this extra like meaning, I, I think, or like or at least you show that you really care about that data if you go through this lengthy process of of casting or applying or uh, uh, carving something uh, to represent it, right? Yeah, it, it is a really interesting process that only after doing several works have I been able to reflect on and like look inside myself and understand what's happening. And mm -hmm. <laughs> I have, I don't write code. I don't, <laughs> I've tried. It's not my thing. Um, I, I don't, approach data from a digital um, knowing. And I've really come at it from this back door of like literally like plotting things on mm -hmm. graph paper at some points. I've gotten better with some of the tools. I use Excel spreadsheets quite a bit, but like I think having a more intuitive um, embodied knowledge of that data, going through all the steps from design to mm. fabrication to like a finished thing my body actually has an interaction with the patterns and the trends and the relationships and the you know the the changes in landscape that are happening that i'm dealing with in a very mm. 
non-cognitive way. It's a very embodied way. And it's a really strange experience to have. But uh, mm -hmm. it's something that really keeps driving my work forward. Yeah, I think it's like we had an episode once where you talked about indexical visualizations, all <laughs> these data-less information displays. And I think your work is very close to that in a sense that some of the techniques are almost like, let's say, like long-term Uh, how do you say, long-time exposure in photography or something like this, right? Where mm. you would like apply a physical trick to manipulate time or to work time, for instance, into a piece. Like if you extrude the shape of a, of a glacier or a river a, a long time and make a sculpture out of that, you can see that as a data visualization or as a, a perceptual trick in a way or like a, or a yeah, like a, like a data-less information display as well. I think that's very intriguing. Yeah. And we can't we can't see the landscape like we see it in the moment. Like sure. with the tides, yeah, yeah. you go to the mm -hmm. ocean, you yeah. see it. Yeah. If you yeah. if you spend six hours there, you can see it go from high tide to low mm -hmm. tide. But like to make that a static object that you can take in as a whole in relation to each other, it kind of it reveals something that you can't see in a moment that yeah. I'm interested in. Yeah. Super interesting. Like, can we briefly talk about art and science again? It's one of my my favorite topics. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> exactly at the border, so I have somebody I could talk to about this. So, so do you? I just suspect you get a lot of this uh, comments, like, "Yeah, this all looks very nice, but is it really rigorous?" And I can't really read the data. I'm missing a legend here. Uh, do you get these types of comments or uh, are you scared yeah, well, from this? <laughs> legibility is a big question when, when it comes to data. I, I'm an artist, which is very intentional choice. Mm -hmm. I often get asked if I have a scientific background, which I do not. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I kind of like that I don't have any expertise in science per se. I read a lot of scientific reports, which can be very dry, mm -hmm. um, particularly about climate change can be very depressing as well. Um, yeah. And I have a lot of personal feelings about how the bureaucracy of science is limiting the ability for that field to spread um, some of the really important work that's happening in the scientific field, spe specifically regarding the environment, but in many mm -hmm. things. And it, it, you know, no one's ever said specifically, like, I don't think this is um, useful because there's no scientific rigor behind it. Mm -hmm. It's a question that comes up, but I like to say that because I'm an artist, this is very much my interpretation of what that science is. Mm -hmm. um, And I have no qualms about that, that I'm very open with that. Um, but I definitely do strive in the way that I'm representing the work to stay as accurate as possible. And because I'm showing forms um, that represent changes over time, typically, that not all of them are, but a lot of them are, um, I, I'm looking more at a longer term trend or mm -hmm. a longer term pattern that is more about seeing relationships than it is about looking literally at one part and saying, how can I pull the numbers off of this piece and make sure it matches the data mm -hmm. set you started with? Mm -hmm. And you can always point back to the original like reports and the original charts, right? If somebody's really like 
wants to know exactly what, what the data was. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. They're welcome to research. Too. I mean, I think I just want to get to get people excited about learning more about these things. Like, I think mm-hmm. it's a way to have a conversation that science sometimes has a challenging time getting across to people because it's a really dry format in the ways sometimes that science is limited to expressing an idea. So I've definitely got a lot of emails from scientists specifically that have seen my work, maybe work in the field of the data that I've used and say, a lot of them are really appreciative. Actually, mm-hmm. I don't. I think they've all been appreciative that someone is trying to convey that idea, that message sure. in a format that would totally go over someone else's head in the scientific format. So mm-hmm. I've actually gotten quite a bit of positive response from the scientific community. Do you also get commissions from from scientists, like they where they say, "Oh, we would we have this new data set, and we would like you to work on the representation." interested i've never gotten a specific commission from Uh that um i am doing a project right now with the university of lethbridge there's a great program in data visualization there it's up in canada um and there they invited six data visualization artists to work on two specific data sets that they've partnered with scientists up there for that are related to um, wheat production. One is a wheat breeder who is trying to develop a perennial version of wheat. And the other one is a genetic scientist who's trying to genetically engineer a version of wheat that is averse to wheat rust, which is a really terrible um, fungus that can wipe out a whole wheat um, crop. So so I'm, I have been approached with specific data sets, and I kind of see those as a challenge to do something I wouldn't normally choose. And I really kind of like that challenge. That's where the designer in me really comes out, because mm-hmm. it's more about solving a problem. Um, but it is also really challenging when I don't have complete control over what data set I find because usually you don't know what data set's going to give you give you that moment of realization or like reveal that unseen thing. So mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. research part of that needs to let you find that data set specifically. I'm I'm still learning how to have someone approach me with a data set and just like jump right in and get something <laughs> really meaningful out of it. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It needs to. Yeah, it all needs to come together, and it's not. Obvious that so, even somebody who might have an interesting data set that it would be an interesting piece. Um, yeah, mm. sure. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. It's so intriguing. I, I think it's very unique uh, what you do. Also, in the beginning, I had sort of I, I get it much better now, but I had trouble like understanding if you're more like a designer who's like on the artistic side or more like a scientist who has like a design you know <laughs> angle or or an artist who's really more into data. <laughs> You know, you, you seem to be on the fringes there, but I, I think now it's much clearer to me that that you do place yourself in the art uh, context, right? And and this is how you operate. I kind of like I like keeping people guessing. Um, <laughs> I like walking the line between all of those things, and I think the interdisciplinary work is really the most exciting to me because I don't want to be put in a box. Yeah. But. Um, Yeah, uh, I think all of those titles work in a in a way, and um, I don't know. Uh, Who cares in the end? <laughs> yeah, right? I don't know. I think I land on artist because artist really no one really knows what that means. <laughs> yeah, that's always a plus. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's abstract enough that people are you know the first question is usually do you paint? You know, like, <laughs> no. 
it can mean anything at this point in time. Super interesting. Like we briefly talked a bit about technique. This is something I'm also really interested in. So, can you give us like a quick rundown of what techniques are out there? Like to like, there's so much interesting industrial production happening right now that we have access to, right? So, like, mm -hmm. so you talked about CNC machines. So these are. Uh, electronic milling devices, right? But I think you could also use lasers or 3D print or I don't know. What else is out there? Like, what, or what do you enjoy working with to uh, produce these sculptures? Yeah, um, I would say for prototyping, I definitely will use laser cutters to do like small scale versions. The the process of figuring out proportions and scale mm -hmm. and kind of that that stuff is really so great. So you to would always... cut a thin material with a laser or wood yeah. also? Yeah, you can cut wood. You can cut you know um, acrylic if you're doing something clear. You know, there's um, paper, depending mm -hmm. on the piece, depending on how quickly you're trying to work with it mm -hmm. and just like kind of get an idea out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like thick cardboard can work really well too. I've definitely mm -hmm. used, um, I use digital um, fabrication help mostly in the prototyping phase. Um, and I've, I've also used water jet cutters to cut parts. Um, you can cut plywood on a water jet cutter. It's, there's reasons why it's not, It's way more expensive in some ways than using a CNC router, but it is a facility that can work, especially for certain kinds of parts, depending on how complicated they are. Mm -hmm. um, I've never been able to utilize 3D printing in, um, and I know specifically why. It's because a lot of the forms that I'm pulling out are really organic and mm -hmm. fluid and have a lot of complicated shapes happening. Uh, And I've had a lot of issues having CAD modeling programs that give me enough control over the forms to really make the piece without distorting the data a lot. Okay, okay. Uh -huh. And unless you have a watertight CAD model, you can't actually 3D print anything. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I've mostly used Rhino as a program to create the forms and then I can put it into other programs to slice it up into layers mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and then cut things out in 3D materials from, you know, the, the digital to analog is a really fun process. Okay. So the 3D part is much harder if, if you want to 3D print. Is that right? For me personally, yes. Just because mm -hmm. of the forms that I'm pulling out are very right. organic. I mm -hmm. definitely have seen other data viz physical visualization artists who are much more on the programming and much more on the, the design end who do make their work with 3D printing mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and I, power to them. <laughs> sure. yeah, yeah. If I like, could just put a button and have it come out, like that'd be cool. I also, you yeah. can't make things at the scale I want to make them sure. or and in the materials. Also, exactly. So it's, I can see why, why it's not a good fit. Yeah, yeah. And if somebody would want to start like on a very like lo-fi level what, what do you think what could be the best way to get started quickly like could even i don't know you could even do pottery i guess or like what, what would be easy ways to to experiment with sculptures or cardboard or what's the best starting point what, what, what would you say 
Yeah, I've done I've done some really fun little series of smaller sculptures that are not data based, but more on a process based. Mm-hmm. Um, where I've started with a plasticine clay, which is an oil based clay that doesn't ever dry, and oh. it's really easy to sculpt Fun. and mold just with your hands. It's a really enjoyable process. I've taught workshops on this process, and people love the clay part because you just mm-hmm. get your hands into it. And mm-hmm. I've taught a lot of woodworking classes, particularly in the Bay Area. Most of my students, which are adult, you know, nighttime classes, work Mm -hmm. in programming or in computer science, and they come into this class and they're like, I just need to use my hands for something. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, that's me. That's me. (laughs) Well, for you, I would recommend uh, plasticine clay, get a two pound block of it and just start playing with it. And there's, um, there's a really fun process that I've used, um, with, I don't know if you guys have heard of one, two, three D catch. I think they've changed it to Revit. I'm not quite sure. It's an Autodesk product, um, that is free and you can take a series of photographs around an object from different angles. Um, and I think it's between like 35 to 70 photographs and it will use those photographs to stitch the, um, photographs into a, a CAD model, a mesh oh, really? that you, yeah, wow. it's a really great way to streamline and actually cut out, um, CAD modeling something from scratch, which can be a huge learning curve. If you don't have, CAD modeling experience, it mm-hmm. takes a lot of time and energy to get the ability to make things you really want to make that don't just look like they're designed on a computer. Um, mm-hmm. So if you use 123D Catch, take photos, you can turn that into a mesh. And then with that mesh, you can do some basic edits to it. You can scale it to a much larger scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can put it into another program and slice it up and then have parts to build. And that's a really great process for prototyping because you start with clay, go to a digital mesh, and then you can slice it up, cut those parts out on a laser cutter out of cardboard and pretty quickly immediately have a new version of that thing you made in clay. That sounds great. I'll do that straight away. I'll get this clay. (laughs) (laughs) It's a super fun process. I just kind of like, you know, put on a show, mess with clay for a really long time until I get a thing I like. And then just, yeah, Yeah. it's a, it's a way to be more intuitive and immediate in the way you make. Sometimes planning these huge sculptures, it gets, you get to a point where you're like, I'm, I need to just make something. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Just be inspired by the, the form and yeah, just see what happens and not think everything out and <laughs> just, yeah, be a bit more intuitive. Yeah. Exactly. Fascinating. That's super interesting. It's uh, crazy. It's a crazy world. <laughs> yeah. And and yeah. I'm also I'm so grateful for all this technology also that allows people like you to build all this stuff. You know, it's like I don't know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago it would have been super hard to to do these things. I mean, you got started around that time, but the the progress in these areas is amazing and and I love that people like you use it for for aesthetic and artistic purposes, not just uh industry or something yeah (laughs) there's a lot of it being used for industry for sure but it is it is wonderful there's so many tools out there that can just help you like oh that step can just be done this way and it just allows it to kind of come quicker that being said i don't really make pieces quicker but it would be nice if 
that did work. Equate. Yeah. Um, have have you guys ever thought about taking some of your data project? I know, Maritz, you do like your food projects, which is this beautiful experiential way to like en- engage with data. But have have you guys ever thought about going into a three dimensional realm with some of your work? Um. Not really, but I am aware of a few researchers who've been doing some of these things. We actually had um, a couple of people in the past Mm -hmm. talking about 3D printed charts. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, there are a few people who are doing that. Yeah, And also the the episode with domestic data streamers who do these type of social sculptures, like evolving... 3D pieces, basically. I think this is also. Awesome. Oh, I love their work. Yeah, it's yeah. very engaging. You're, yeah, you're and, it's like, and the piece grows with the people interacting, which is always like such a nice thing. And mm. yeah, and this this is also super fascinating. Yeah, I mean, we we once did a piece um, where we also CNC melt like out of um, uh, like how's it called? This artificial wood, like like yeah, very dense material, and we had like these sort of. Also, little landscapes uh, um, uh, depicting the the ups and downs of the tweets around the Olympics, uh, oh. twenty fourteen or something. Yeah, I can't remember, but yeah, it must have been. And yeah, that was super fun. It's but I also got a lot of respect for all the complexities of actually producing something. <laughs> it's like in <laughs> physical form. So there's a lot of stuff that can go wrong and it's hard to fix. And so we we managed well, but it's. Um, for instance, we had to, because the paint, it took like a week to dry and we wanted to show the piece right after the Olympics. We had to produce the first plates during the Olympics, but we didn't know the scale of the data ultimately because it, the data set wasn't finished when we started producing stuff like this. It was a bit crazy, <laughs> but it worked out okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And there is actually, so in my office, I have a 3D bar chart. Mm-hmm that has been donated to me by Pierre and Yvonne. We had them on the show back then. I think that was episode 17. (laughs) (laughs) And I love it. I always keep it in front of me. (laughs) And they've been trying to study the thing from kind of like systematically from the scientific point of view. And they have very interesting findings. Like they, they, um, yeah, they've been experimenting with different forms and what people tend to do with physical bar charts is that they use their hands a lot. They point their finger to some bars. They compare bars by using two fingers, right? Mm. So there is this whole idea of uh, physical manipulation that um, is just so cumbersome to do it with a digital object, mm-hmm. right? So I think what you can do with your hands other than your eyes is also very, very important. So Yeah, I've yeah. also... And it's beautiful. I I've love also it. seen some really great projects using sound, you know, turning data mm-hmm. into sound compositions, as well as some olfactory-based pieces that are really... <laughs> Oh, wow. Quite. We, we, we didn't have that yet. Well, <laughs> cool. I think we have to wrap up. It's uh, su- super long already. But yeah, as always, we could go on chatting forever. But that was super interesting. And I'm really into this like clay thing now. I'm already playing with something similar in my hands here. And I hope maybe some of the listeners also got on the data sculpture track and, and start to buy um, plywood for thousands of dollars. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> you can start smaller. Yeah, hundred is fine too. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Adrian, thanks so much for joining us and sharing your work and perspective. That was fascinating. And we'll link to your site and all the projects in the show notes. So please take a look at the website. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks so much, Adrian. Thanks for coming. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. So, and before we stop, let's quickly mention some related episodes. If you are into data data sculptures now, you 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 have the data sculptures fever. <laughs> we have at least uh, three three episodes that are related to this one. Back then, we already mentioned some of them. We have um, number seventeen. It's called Data Sculptures with Pierre Dragicevich and uh, Yvonne Jensen and. Um, yeah, mostly about how some research on uh, what happens when you show people uh, data that has been printed in the uh, physical world. We also had a great episode with domestic data streamers, number 58. They do basically interactive data installations that are very physical, so people can maybe take a thread and tie it to the sculpture and answer some questions through that or drop something somewhere or build something together and it's always like very fascinating and uh yeah very human work uh episode 58 <laughs> very nice one yeah and the last one we also already mentioned it it's uh, the one about indexical visualization with Dietmar Hoffenuber and that's number 80 so you have um yeah enough to listen to <laughs> yeah um to the next time yeah see you man bye 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 Data Stories is brought to you by Click. Are you missing out on meaningful relationships hidden in your data? Unlock the old story with ClickSense through personalized visualizations and dynamic dashboards, which you can download for free at click.de slash datastories.